Okay, so today's speaker is Pema uh, Chodan. She is uh, currently in Oxford uh, as a visiting scholar, uh, working on her uh, PhD project on the unseen homeland, the construction of Tibet in contemporary discourse and belief in the Tibetan diaspora. And she's uh, enrolled at the University of Tartu in Estonia, at the Department of Estonian and Comparative Folklore Studies. Uh, she holds an MA from uh, Delhi University. And uh, today she's going to talk about the Nechung Oracle and the deconstruction of identity in the Tibetan diaspora. Pema, switch on your microphone and uh, take it away. Okay. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. And um, my topic for today's presentation is uh, the Nechung Oracle and the construction of identity in the Tibetan diaspora, as Daniel has already mentioned. Uh, first of all, I want to say that this presentation is based on my work in progress, uh, and I'll be very happy to get any feedback later. Uh, scholars have long studied oracular practices of minor as well as high status oracles inside and outside Tibet. Many have also been interested in whether the Tibetan oracles characterized by spirit possession can be linked to the concept of shamanism or not. From this point of departure, I will shift the focus of this study to the status of oracles among Tibetans in the diaspora and what oracles signifies to them. I will focus on the Nechung Oracle, today popularly known as the official state oracle of Tibet and the controversy surrounding it in recent years. I will do this against the background of its historical and religious context, but in particular, I will refer extensively to how Tibetans in exile from different age groups and walks of life relate to oracles, based on a survey I have taken in April this year. As far as I know, this survey is the first of its kind. In this presentation, I want to show how the Nichung Oracle, besides being part of a religious belief system, is also one of, this, one of several cultural elements that contribute to mold the identity of Tibetan in the diaspora. Nowadays, they are very conscious of what they regard as their traditional culture and specific cultural elements that they regard as particularly significant for the making of their unique ethnic identity. Among these elements is the Nichung Oracle. Oracular, tr oracular trance is characterized by possession by a formless being, and an oracle is a person who in this state of consciousness can predict, heal, or advise members of the community. I will use the term oracle to refer to the person who, at certain moments, acts as the medium of the deity. Being an oracle is a status which is permanent, whether the person is in a state of trance or not. I will also use the word in the sense of the institution of the oracle as an ongoing tradition. Confusion arises however, 
When the word oracle is used to refer to the deity as well as its medium, these I will try to avoid in the following. Although they have many features and functions in common, one may distinguish two main types of Tibetan oracles. There are high-ranking and highly institutionalized spirit mediums, kuten, physical basis for the deity, while at a local level, there are pao, heroes, all habab, on whom God descends. The differences in the status and function of the oracle mainly depends on the status of the deity. According to Hildegard Deenberger, there were numerous oracles inside Tibet at the time of her fieldwork at the turn of millennium. In exile, however, only a few have remained. Mainly the ones that were consulted by the Lhasa government before the uprising in 1959, especially the Nichung Oracle, the Gadong Oracle, and the female oracle of the Siring Chenga goddesses. Of these three, Nichung Oracle is of particular importance to Tibetans in the diaspora today. Thus, the Nichung Oracle is the only state oracle in the world, the only remnant of widespread practices that once prevailed in ancient Greece and Rome. Tukdunwotuk is the current Nichung Oracle and the 14th Oracle in the line. Nowadays, he is the medium of the deity Dorje Draktan, the emanation or emissary of Pehar. The latter deity was, at least until the 17th century, believed to be the deity who spoke through the oracle. The tradition of Tibetan government in exile of consulting the Nichung oracle goes back to the 17th century when the fifth Dalai Lama became the head of the government based in Hassa that was known as Garden Potang. These close ties between the Dalai Lama and the deity Pehar ensured that the Nichung oracle became the most prominent of all the Tibetan oracles. The popular belief is similar to what is written uh, what is written in the Nichung Karchak, an official inscription still preserved inside the Nichung Monastery in Lhasa. The Karchak was composed partly by the fifth Dalai Lama and partly by the subsequent regent Sanke Gyatso. It has been translated by Christopher Bell, who gave a fascinating presentation of it in this forum a few weeks ago. It states that Pehar was captured and brought to Sami Monastery during the reign of King Trisong Detsin in order to protect the newly founded monastery in Tibet. The narrative goes on to say that the Indian tantric master Padmasambhava subdued, the, subdued Pehar and bound him in an oath to protect the Buddha's teaching in Tibet. According to the Nichung Karchak, the relationship between the Dalai Lama and the oracle goes back to the second Dalai Lama, Gendun Gyatso. It is further believed that the deity was installed in the Nichung Monastery in Lhasa during the reign of the fifth Dalai Lama. After the 1959 exodus 
to India, the Nechung Monastery was re-established in 1984 in Dharamsala and, is, and the deity is believed to reside there. Although the Nechung Oracle is not mentioned in the charter of the Central Tibetan Administration, C, uh, formerly known as CTA, it is now known as CTA, it is nevertheless recognized as the official state oracle of Central Tibetan Administration. Conforming to this tradition, the Nechung Oracle is consulted twice, once in winter and once in summer by, by the CTA and the Dalai Lama consults him seven to eight times a year. The Nechung Oracle plays a significant role both politically and spiritually. In April 2020, I did an online survey of Tibetans from different walks of life and living in the diaspora in different parts of the world regarding the status of Nechung Oracle and the local oracles, the latter generally known among Tibetans in the diaspora as Thabab. The questionnaire was returned by 54 men and women aged from 82 to 14. Out of 54 respondents, 40 responded that they believe in the Nichung Oracle and in the practice as an ancient Tibetan tradition. The most important result of the survey was that it showed that these Tibetans regard the Oracle as the protector of Dalai Lama and therefore of Tibet and hence regard, regard it as the state Oracle of Tibet. Some of my respondent, respondents, as well as three other informants, recounted the historical narrative in 1959, which, in which the oracle played an important role by saving the life of 14 Dalai Lama. This and similar, similar narratives run deep among Tibetans in exile. Firstly, in 1949, when the present Dalai Lama was 14 years old, the oracle was asked about the danger looming from China and responded with an action rather than by speaking. Looking towards the east, he bent his neck 15 times, ignoring the weight of the heavy headdress and thus leaving no one in doubt that the danger was coming from China. Secondly, in March 1959, the oracle insisted that the Dalai Lama should escape and even drew a map showing the route to India. Moreover, the 14th Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama's statement regarding his close relationship with Nichung in his autobiography legitimizes the importance of the oracle. Now against this historical background and to the disappointment of many, during the meeting on the 21st September 2017, of the Tibetan parliament in exile in Dharamsala, Tempa Yarpil, a member of the parliament, lambasted the practice of Tibetan government of consulting the Nichung Oracle. He forcefully expressed the opinion that the institution of Oracle should be abolished, maintaining that consulting deities for political reason is not in accordance with true Buddhism. This was not the first time he had spoken in the Tibetan parliament on this topic. As a year earlier, he had expressed similar views. I quote from his statement in 2016. 
I quote, Nichung is a state oracle. I wonder what sort of state does this refer to? Does it mean the state oracle consulted by the Garden Potong in former times, implying that it is functioning at present? Or does it refer to the government in exile? Somehow we need to make a clear distinction between these two governments. The Nechung oracle and the deity of Nechung are not something that is known to known by every Tibetan. I, for instance, have nothing to do with it. Every Buddhist tradition has its own oracles, I unquote. However, he is not the first to speak against the practice of oracle in the diaspora. Indeed, in 2006, documentary film by David Chernak, uh, The Oracle Reflection on Self, Jamyang Norbu, a Tibetan writer in exile, also openly criticized the practice of Nichung Oracle as a means to evade one's political responsibility. Moreover, in the contemporary Tibetan community in exile, criticism of oracle is not limited to verbal communication, but they also become the object of mockery in social media, where anonymous person post memes ridiculing them. It is not only a 21st century phenomenon among youngsters, but also includes second generation Tibetans in the diaspora. However, unlike others who have spoken against the oracle, Tempa Yarpil was condemned by hundreds of Tibetans around the world, mainly older or middle-aged women. One, one could witness a very peculiar way of protesting against him when a group of Tibetans, mainly consisting of women, waving pieces of black cloth at him, shouted slogans such as, we totally oppose you. Shame on you, shameless man. You are inauspicious man. And aiming at the people who were with him, supporting him is like going against the wish of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Similarly, Tibetans in Toronto organized a protest against Tempa Yarpil, holding a poster sized photo of the Dalai Lama draped in Tibetan traditional white scarf, together with poster saying, I quote Tempa Yarpil, we are demanding your resignation from Tibetan parliament, member of parliament. We are not protesting against our government CTA. Stop disrespecting state oracle and stop causing fraction in Tibetan community. I unquote. In my survey, uh, out of 54 respondents, only five were totally opposed to the idea of consulting the Nichung Oracle. For instance, one of the respondents, a student aged 30, wrote that he does not believe in Oracle because, I quote, it is simply superstitious and mockery of democracy, I unquote. Another respondent, who is 25 years old, working as a teacher, wrote, I quote, I think it's a psychological issue with the people and their brain, I unquote. A man of 60 who did not write why he is opposed to the practice of the Nichung Oracle, nevertheless stated that Tempa Yarfil's criticism was right. 
One of the reasons for the controversy concerning the exiled governments consulting the oracle is the perceived conflict with the modern democratic system that Tibetans have adopted in the diaspora. According to my survey, there were 14 Tibetans who, were, who are doubtful of the practice of consulting the oracle on a political level. Although some might accept private consultations of the oracles. A young man who believes in the reality of oracular possession and who has witnessed his uncle consulting a local oracle for medical reasons, nevertheless wrote, I quote, it is absolutely ridiculous for a government to consult an oracle. And if so, what is the use of parliament session? I unquote. Until a generation ago, there were a number of local oracles in the Tibetan diaspora. One of the very few orac scholars who have studied local oracles in the diaspora before they virtually disappeared is the Swedish anthropologist Per Anna Buckley. Now the situation has changed, however. None of the five Tibetans in my survey who were completely against the practice of oracles has ever consulted an oracle. However, it is worth noting that as much as half of the respondents who believe in the Nichung Oracle still feel that it is no longer relevant today. There were also 11 people who were not clear about their belief in the oracles, using modifying words like somewhat, do not know, a bit skeptical, it depends, etc. A woman aged 25 wrote, I quote, with modernization, many of us have become more rational in making decisions on our own without help of any third party, which in traditional practice are mostly based on mythical practice, I unquote. I will now suggest a number of reasons why some Tibetans no longer share the belief system underpinning the Nechung Oracle. Firstly, local oracles have almost disappeared and with it, with this, ordinary Tibetans have lost touch with their tradition of oracles. At least eight of my respondents had heard about local oracles when they were children or when they were still inside Tibet. Among them, Four mentioned the names of local oracles who were old or who had already passed away. For a few, for, for a few Tibetans, the local oracle are just distant memories from their childhood in the early period of Tibetan settlements in Nepal and India. Out of 54 respondents, 42 had never consulted any local oracle and were not aware of present local oracles in their community. Although the practice of Habab seems to be disappearing in the Tibetan diaspora, a few high status oracles, including the Nichung Oracle, have successfully continued till today. This is the opposite of what Dimberger describes in her study of female oracles inside Tibet, where after the 1959 exodus, and the Cultural Revolution, local oracles survived, whereas high oracles disappeared. 
Ethnographic studies show that the primary function of Tibetan oracles was to cure people's illness. Both Dimberger and Berkeley point out that the most frequently posed question to the deity concerned health problems. This brings me to the second reason for the virtual disappearance of local oracles. Namely, a modern health system, healthcare system, as well as the development of large-scale availability of Tibetan traditional medicine. Together, they have replaced the tradition of consulting oracles in case of illness and thus been crucial to the demise of the local oracle, oracular practice. In other words, words the, function, the function as healer was crucial for the, for the oracles to retain their importance in the community. In the Tibetan diaspora today, this function is becoming largely irrelevant. A few Tibetans who still consult local oracles responded that they generally do so when they have problems in choosing the right hospital for medical treatment or sometime for choosing a college for the studies or the right country to immigrate to. There therefore seems to be a shift in the function of oracles from curing illness to the less crucial role of helping people to choose the right hospital. A third reason is the well-organized modern education system in the exiled communities. Berkeley writes that, I quote, the hereditary trans transmission of the office was very important. A long line of power in the family was taken as a guarantee of the trustworthiness of performing, I unquote. This is where the advent of modern education has reduced the practice because it is unlikely that children of the first generation of exiled oracles would carry on the tradition. Two of my informants stated that they had friends whose parents were Pao, but their friends had not themselves con continued the tradition. Likewise, two of my respondents, who are 25 and 30 years old, wrote that their grandfather and great uncle respectively were local oracles. However, both of them were skeptical about the relevance of oracles in today's society. Now coming back to the controversy, the protest against the Bayarpil goes deeper than being simply the expression of religious belief. There are other cases, as well as of public demonizing and ostracizing, which have nothing to do with the nature oracle, but concern the Dalai Lama. Lukarjam, who stood for the post of Sikyong in 2016, was demonized because he had posted an obituary to Elliot Sperling, in which he wrote, I quote, not out of loyalty, but speaking of your ethical courageous position, you, Elliot Sperling, are the one who should have lived for 113 years, I unquote. This statement was taken as directed against the Dalai Lama by many Tibetans because the latter had many times 
mentioned in public that he would live 113 years. The reference of the symbolic number by Lukarjam provoked the Tibetans around the world in the same way as Tempa Yarba's criticism of the Nichung Oracle. Moreover, when standing for the election in 2016 of Prime Minister in the Tibetan government in exile, Lukarjam called for the full independence of Tibet rather than the middle way that was introduced by the Dalai Lama in 1987, calling for autonomy rather than independence. In other words, Lukas Jam's position contradicted that of most Tibetans who had incorporated the middle way approach to the struggle of Tibet. His public remark that people believed was directed towards the Dalai Lama provoked an open letter signed by 2,221 Tibetans entitled Lukarjam, Enemy of Tibetans. He was not only verbally criticized, but in one case, he was turned out of a restaurant in the Ramsala. In another case, his car was damaged and some people even threatened to kill him and his family. The Tibetan in the diaspora were sundered into two groups one consisting of few who were sympathetic to him on the basis of right to expression, and other of the majority who were against him. Now, in order to analyze such internal conflict, we should look at how culture plays a part in politics. As mentioned, Tibetan in the diaspora have become highly conscious of what they regard as a traditional culture. In other words, they believe that there are specific, specific cultural elements that indisputably identify them as Pipa, belonging to Pe, Tibetans. Hence, there is no doubt that Tibetans in the diaspora have created a separate ethnic identity that did not exist before 1959. In my survey, 39 out of 54 respondents pointed out that the Nichung Oracle is important for the Tibetans and Tibet. They've suggested several reasons. The Nichung Oracle is an ancient Tibetan tradition. It is a part of Tibetan culture. It is the state oracle of Tibet, and it is important for the well-being of the Dalai Lama and for finding his reincarnation. This also confirms that what is believed to be important for the Dalai Lama is important for the majority of Tibetans. This brings me to Frederick Barth's influential work, Ethnic Groups and Boundaries, where he deconstructed ethnicity and culture that were once read as inseparable. According to Barth, ethnicity or ethnic identity is an aspect of social organization characterized by ascription and self-ascription of certain characteristics, creating not culture, but cultural difference. Furthermore, Bart emphasized that, I quote, the critical focus of investigation becomes the ethnic boundary that defines the group, not the cultural stuff that it encloses, I unquote. I will argue that 
that it is to show their cultural difference from the Chinese that Tibetans have created an ethnic boundary distinguishing Tibet from China. In doing so, they have molded clearly demarcated ethnic identity, but emphasize, uh, emphasis, emphasize on ascription, emphasis on ascription and self-ascription is crucial to understanding the ethnic Tibetan identity in the diaspora today. As it has developed through their embracing certain cultural elements over the decades. Tsering Shakya has argued against this identity construction by observing that with regard to the word Pepa, traditionally, I quote, there is no indigenous term which encompasses the population denoted by the Western usage. A local term Pepa can be used only restrictively, even today. The nomads of Changtang use it for the people of the Lhasa Valley, while for the people of Kham and Amdo, it means exclusively the inhabitants of central Tibet. Significantly, the person using the word Pepa never identifies himself as part of the group. Bird's statements regarding boundaries is relevant in the case of the construction of Greater Tibet, consisting of Kham, Amdo, and Uzang, sometimes referred to as the three provinces, Chorkasum. Regarding this, Shagya argues that, I quote, unification of entire Tibetan-speaking area under Bir Chorkasum has become deeply invaded in the political culture of the Tibetan diaspora, where the core of the refugees' political identity lay in the conception of Tibet as the unity of Kham, Amdo, and Uzang, I unquote. The Tibetan ethnic identity in the diaspora today places the Tibetans within these boundaries, in spite of the fact that they share many cultural similarities with Bhutan and with Indian regions such as Ladakh and Sikkim, and with Sherpas and others in Nepal. This cultural sharing is cut across by the imagined as well as political borders, so that in spite of similarities in culture, religion, script, and language, inhabitants of these regions are not counted as Tibetans. When Tibetans call themselves Pepa today, it signifies Tibetans from the, the Tibetan regions that are under Chinese occupation and Tibetan in the diaspora, implying a population having a common history, tradition, and sharing worldview and myths. Having been placed into one single ethnic category, Tibetans in the diaspora, although originating from different regions, are now striving to define a shared culture, thereby create a unified Tibetan community. Richard Jenkins, referring to Bart, states, I quote, shared culture is best understood as generated in and by processes of ethnic boundary maintenance rather than other way around, I unquote. In this connection, the nation oracle is one of the cultural tradition that is being promoted as an element of shared culture in the Tibetan diaspora, irrespective of religious schools. There is no doubt 
that consulting the Nichung Oracle is an ancient Tibetan tradition, but it does not seem that it was known as it is today in the diaspora nowadays as the state oracle, as the Oracle of Tibet. The tradition of consulting the Nichung Oracle by Lhasa-based Tibetan government is indisputable, but whether this tradition applied to all parts of pre-1959 Tibet is questionable. Hence, rather we seem to see a shift of regional symbol, the Nichung Oracle, towards becoming a pan-Tibetan one. This is a part of a broader process, the Tibetan community in exile, namely a process of unification of Tibetan identity under a homogeneous culture and tradition. Another related element of what is regarded as constituting Tibetan culture is the Dalai Lama as the supreme spiritual and traditionally also politically political leader of all Tibetans. This idea has been constructed or at least vigorously promoted in exile after the Chinese occupation of Tibet. Shakya argues that the supreme leadership of the Dalai Lama has been constructed in the diaspora and that the Dalai Lama's political authority never extended beyond central Tibet. Invention of tradition are not unknown in the Tibetan diaspora today. For instance, Claire Harris states that the construction of a shrine or chamber for the Dalai Lama that is now found in every sizable monastery in the diaspora, irrespective of their religious affiliations, affiliation was a practice limited to the Geluk school in Tibet prior to 1959. Likewise, cultural elements such as the national flag, the national anthem, and above all, the Dalai Lama as a spiritual, lead, spiritual and political leader of all Tibetans, including the Nichung Oracle, have become markers of Tibetan identity. However, Tempa Yarpel and Lukarjam have transgressed the norms of the exile community and are therefore perceived as being against the shared political goal of the majority of diasporic Tibetans. Catherine Vadri, an American anthropologist, links the Bardian idea of ethnicity to that of state-making, thus to nationalism. She states that ethnic identities are flexible, changeable, and situationally adaptive, which she calls situationalism. She then links situationalism to state-making because it is in the process of state-making that ethnic identities take shape. We can see the same development towards an ethno-national identity here. Observing the dominant narrative in Tibetan communities around the world, the cultural traits which are regarded by Tibetans as crucial for their identity appear to have a political rather than a cultural origin. A homogenized Tibetan identity is constructed to advance the political struggle against the Chinese occupation of Tibetan areas, rather than having a timeless inherent cultural origin or essence, as it is widely believed even by non-Tibetan supporters of Tibet. I therefore agree with Vadri's argument 
that culture is politics rather than something inherent in ethnicity. Another American anthropologist, Brackett F. Williams, also argues that the state uses myth of homogeneity to stabilize the notion of culture, tradition, authenticity, and common shared for its administrative task, and that the nationalism and ethnicity results from the various construction of myths of homogeneity out of the realities of heterogeneity that characterize all nation building. For instance, Claire Harris maintains that the culture of having the Dalai Lama's icon prominently displayed in public and private is, I quote, a result of ideological battle, battles fought in visual field during the 1960s and 1970s in Chinese-controlled Tibet, I unquote. This indicates that such cultural practices in the diaspora have developed for political reasons. Hence, I argue that the Dalai Lama functions to consolidate political rather than cultural solidarity. But this function is hidden under cultural elements, including a belief system that are highly politicized. I further argue that Tibetans in the diaspora have used ethnic identity, but above all their culture for the political purpose of campaigning for the freedom of Tibet. Although Vaudry's theory of culture as politics can be applied to the Tibetan diasporic situation, the government in exile is not simply a regime where the power flows from the center outward. The general Tibetan population in the diaspora also plays an important role in politicizing their culture. In the case of the Dalai Lama, Martin A. Mills maintains that, I quote, it is not so much a centrifugal power that extends outward, but as a centripetal or inward ascription of authority by others. Likewise, one cannot deny the fact that Tibetans in the diaspora fear losing what they consider their true culture. Regarding such phenomena, hence Vermeulen and Cora Govers argue that, I quote, where interaction is increasing and where people are losing or fear they will lose their cultural distinctiveness, they become aware of their culture may start to repair their culture and demand cultural rights, I unquote. Regina Bendix, a Swiss folklorist, offers an opposite remark concerning national uniqueness when she, when she argues that, I quote, the notion of national uniqueness harbors a conservative ethos of the past. The notion of authenticity ultimately undermines the liberating and humanitarian tendency from which it grew, I unquote. Thus, the idea of having to preserve what they believe is being destroyed by Chinese inside Tibet, sometimes referred to as cultural genocide, and having to live as a minority in an alien multipolity may have led the Tibetan to embrace conser con 
conservatism and essentialism. Concerning such essentialist phenomenon, the British political scientist Anne Phillips states that, I quote, Uh, the policing of this collective category, the treatment of a supposedly shared characteristic as the defining ones that cannot be questioned or modified without undermining an individual's claim to belong to the group, I unquote. In moving forward with this unified responsibility to attain greater autonomy for Tibet, some Tibetans have taken to policing what they regard is the basis of the Tibetan identity. This process of creating a pan-Tibetan culture results in an essentialism as defined by Anne Phillips. In adopting their own brand of essentialism, Tibetans may unwittingly be participating in a broader global trend. Thank you. Thank you, Pema.